0: Uh, It'd be great to know you've got uh, Philippians chapter 1 open, uh, that you can glance down at it. We are such creatures of our time and place. Uh, At least you are, not not me. Um, What I mean is the way we live and think in the world is so shaped by the influences on our lives that we can hardly tell... What is genuinely good and true, and what is just how our culture thinks, so we think that way too. The influences on our lives, uh, the media that we happen to fill our heads with, the family we came from, the education we had, uh, the kind of people we hang out with, all of these things decisively shape us into the image of our culture. It's so easy to look back on 9th and 10th century European Christians, as we did in that crusade scene uh, from the recent documentary, and think, how could they possibly have done that? But as Christopher Tymon, one of the leading crusade scholars in the world from Oxford University, points out, it's well known that what the Christians of the 9th and 10th centuries had been doing was so trying to accommodate Christianity to the dominant... uh, military class and military culture of Europe that they allowed themselves to be converted to militarism as they sought to convert the Europeans to Christ. A two-way conversion took place and they became part of their culture unable to see themselves objectively. Now, I like to think I wouldn't have done that. Mm -mm, Not me. Sermon on the Mount guy. But I don't have any confidence I would have been any different had I been in their shoes. And all of this just raises a very disturbing question. What elements of today's culture has the church embraced, which later Christians will look back on as a betrayal of the gospel of Christ? I mean, we have either evolved to a point of cultural purity in the church, where we are no longer influenced by culture, or there are things in our contemporary Christian culture, shaped by the world, that later Christians will really wonder about. Now, I'm not sure we can ever sit completely loosely to culture, you know, free from our cultural influences. Um, And I'm not sure, actually, the Bible demands that we sit completely loosely loosely to our culture, but I'm pretty convinced there's only one way not to be a complete captive to our culture, captive to our blip in time and history. And that one way is to listen to a voice from outside our culture, just as much as we listen to all the voices from within our culture. And that's why we read Deuteronomy 6, where the Lord is saying to Israel, listen to these words, the commandments... They are life for you. Talk about them as you walk uh, along the road. Write them on your doorposts. Have them always in your mind because everything in culture will seek to shape you. You've got to let other voices in. And our New Testament passage is all about the same thing. How can we let that other eternal word break through all the clamoring voices of our culture? That eternal gospel word. It's a very hard message for ancient Philippians to receive, actually, because they were pretty proud of their cultural blip, thank you very much. I said last week that uh, Philippi had been elevated to the status of Roman colony by Emperor Augustus. Uh, This meant they had tax breaks other cities didn't have, they had special laws that made them a mini-Rome. The emperor was their personal patron. And they sat on the Via Ignatia, the superhighway of the ancient world. This kind of intersection between the eastern and the western part of the Roman Empire. They felt special. And Paul had brought the gospel to them. They'd surrendered to Christ. And now in this passage, written to them uh, 12 years after he first uh, brought the gospel to them, he pleads them to listen to the gospel word not their culture. Well, he offers himself first as an example of someone able to sit loosely to his cultural moment. And that's what that first paragraph just read to us uh, unpacks. So from verse twenty of Philippians one, uh, Paul is in prison and he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will nowhere be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body and so on. It's hard to tell whether this is really the tail end of the missionary update we looked at last week or whether it is a nice, subtle introduction to the theme of the next paragraph, which is all about sitting loosely to our culture and listening to the gospel word above every other voice. Maybe it's both, maybe it's a kind of deliberate setup, but what Paul is clearly doing is he's presenting himself as someone in dire circumstances who sits loosely to the circumstances. If I die, I'm fine. I get to be with Christ. How fantastic is that? If I live, that's fantastic. I keep on uh, doing work for for you in this world. It's the apostolic win-win. Die, go to Christ, stay, do work for Christ. I love it. He isn't advocating detachment in the Buddhist sense. Uh, this is uh, quite popular uh, nowadays. The third noble truth of the Buddha is that you'll find contentment in suffering through detachment from desire. And uh, there are all sorts of techniques you can learn to detach from certain unhelpful Uh, emotions. I can see the benefit of that. Buddha actually, though, went much further. He said, you've got to detach from negative and positive emotions, from all desire. And I just want to make clear that Paul isn't saying that. This isn't Buddhist detachment. Paul is actually really attached. He desires to go to be with Christ. He'd make a hopeless Buddhist. And he's passionate about staying and doing more work for Christ in the world. What we have here is contentment, not through detachment, but through trust in the Sovereign Lord that whatever His circumstances, it's all in God's hands and it's fine with Him. Life is fruitful service, death is glory. What an attitude. It's an attitude that only makes sense if you believe the Gospel. Because what's the Gospel about? The gospel is about Christ entering into the world and serving the world by giving His life on a cross so we could be forgiven. His whole um, orientation was to serve. And then He dies. And then God raises Him to life. And if you believe that, it makes sense to say life is about service and sometimes suffering, but it will also lead to resurrection glory. And all of that beautifully sets up The real thing Paul wants to say in verse 27, to live according to this gospel. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. This line is uh, usually regarded as the heading over the rest of the book of Philippians. Uh, This is the central line of Philippians, as in it's the main command of the whole letter. And the reason we know this is it's the first actual instruction in the whole letter. Thus far in the letter, in the first uh, 26 verses, Paul has done lots of things. He's um, praised, he's prayed, he's reported, um, he's advised, but he has never given a command yet. There are no verbs in the imperative mood for the nerds amongst us. And ancient readers, when they heard letters read out, listened to the first verb in the imperative mood. That is, the first do this, and this is the first do this. And what is it? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of. Of the gospel. This hangs like a heading over all that now comes in the letter to the Philippians. And there's a special wordplay that the Philippians will have heard instantly and thought, oh, well done, Paul. But it's a little bit obscured because of the limitations of the English language. The five words there, conduct yourselves in a manner, translate just one verb. It's the verb. in the imperative mood. This is the instruction. The conduct yourselves in a manner is just there, which is the verb of the word citizen. All of our polit words come from it. Uh, politics, polite, police, polity. I, I've run out. Um, someone can tell me other words later. Anyway, it, it, it's the word citizen, and politoeste there means citizenize. It was the Greek term you used... living as a good citizen of the Roman Empire and can you see what Paul's done here he's pinched it and said you live you live for another Empire so you politoest there according to the gospel of Christ Marcus Bockmull New Testament professor at Oxford University puts it really well in his comment on this verse against the colonial preoccupation with the coveted citizenship of Rome Paul interposes a counter citizenship whose capital and seat of power are not earthly but heavenly, whose guarantor is not Nero but Christ. Philippi may be a colony enjoying the personal imperial patronage of Lord Caesar, but the church at Philippi is a personal colony of Christ the Lord above all. Our citizenship, our living according uh, to God's kingdom is defined not by the gospel of Caesar, the gospel of power and domination, but by the gospel of Christ. He makes it very clear, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he mentions it again, the next uh, line, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul will narrate this gospel over the page. If you have a look at chapter 2, verse 6, see the indented bit uh, in your Bibles? Chapter 2, verse 6, the two stanzas there, which we'll uh, unpack next week. Uh, whether you're at the weekend away or here, same uh, passage we'll be exploring. And you can notice it's all about Christ emptying himself, suffering and dying, and then God exalting him back to glory. Let's uh, just read it briefly. Who being in very nature God, this is Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then it's reversed. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, and so on. We'll do the details next week. But this is the gospel that shapes our conduct. Christ emptying himself, serving and suffering for the good of the world, and God exalting him to glory. And that's the gospel that is to shape our conduct, just as Christ suffered for us and was raised to glory, so we are called to suffer and await glory. Verses 28 and 29. Striving for this gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them, those who oppose you, that they will be destroyed But that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I have. It turns out the Philippians are going through the same struggle as Paul. Paul's in a Roman jail when he writes this. I doubt any of the Philippians are yet being thrown in jail, but the same imperial pressure is being applied to them. You're going through the same thing that I'm going through, he says. But then basically, the apostle says, the way you graciously accept hardship for the gospel is a sign to your persecutors of that gospel. That's what he says, isn't it? It's a sign to them. How so? I think it just means your fearless devotion to the path of service and suffering while you await resurrection glory is a kind of picture of the gospel itself. As the Christian suffers and serves, leaving the outcome to God, it's like a picture of the gospel. And I think Paul's idea is the persecutors will look on at the Christians and go, I wonder if all that stuff they go on about the crucified lord who was resurrected is true. Cuz they look like that. They look like they believe in a crucified lord who was resurrected. And it's a sign. How you live is a sign of the gospel. If indeed we polituest there live as citizens by that gospel and not any other. I said in our series, in Revelation, that our mission in the world is not to stand up for our rights. Demand that Christian traditions are maintained in the world. That's not our mission. Our mission is to bear witness to the crucified Lord and bear whatever suffering comes. And what is true in the book of Revelation is certainly true here in Philippians. And that's why Paul can even say suffering for Christ is a grace. Did you notice that in verse 29? Verse 29 is really interesting. For it has been granted to you. The word there, charismai, is just the word grace, charis, in verb form. Huh. It has been graced to you. Now, read, read it. For it has been graced to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, we like that grace, don't we? Oh, I'll have more of that, thanks Lord. That grace is beautiful. Not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Hardship for Jesus is a grace. Wow. There's no persecution complex here. Though if anyone could have had a persecution complex, it's Paul. But no. He's not he's he just sees the suffering as a grace from God. Just like his own description of his circumstances in jail. I don't mind whether I live or die, I get to serve Christ in the world, fantastic, or I get to go and be with the Lord, fantastic. It's all grace. Here he's saying it's the same for you Christians. It's a grace. Because it's an identification with Christ. When you suffer for your faith, you experience an intimacy with the crucified Lord. And you are a sign to the world. Unless, of course, you get a persecution complex and you're a jerk when you um, suffer for for being a Christian. And then the sign is distorted, right? And in any case, it's the path to glory. Because the gospel says, Christ emptied himself to the lowest point and God exalted him to the highest point point. and our own lives are about service and sometimes suffering but we're heading for glory resurrection glory the gospel of the crucified Lord is that voice from outside culture calling on us To be bold for Christ, but humble toward the world. To accept persecution, but never turn it into a persecution complex. To lose well, leaving the outcome to the Lord. We are the death and resurrection people. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me pray as my colleagues come up and join me for discussion. Father, please will you write this word on our heart, enable us to hear your word amidst all the voices that uh, clamor for our attention. Lord, help us to give you our ear and our wills and hearts that we might indeed be a sign to this world of the gospel itself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we're doing in this series, uh, we're, we're sort of team preaching this, and uh, I asked uh, Kath and Stu to uh, reflect on the passage. I'm always really challenged
1: when Paul writes, you know, I'd be fine if I am die, I'd be fine if I'm alive. I actually find that really hard. That's actually filled a lot of my quiet time this year, week, because I just thought sort I'd of throw that one in mm. um, for the minute. The thing that, the verse that really stood out for me is verse 27, which I'm glad it did, because it, it seemed to be the, the big one in the, In the passage tonight, of conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I find that as time has gone by, and I feel I still call myself a relatively new Christian, although it's been a long time now, I feel like I've slowly been relegated to the sidelines as far as my opinion as a Christian being relevant. And I see it in things like last night we were at a table of people at a big function. And I think probably five people ask me, "What do I do?" And I have no out as a children's minister. <laughs> so I go, "Oh, I work at a church. I do all the children's stuff at a church. Teach children about Jesus." And I reckon all five said, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to know. And I die at their be- at best. I hope it's that they just don't care. At worst, I fear it may be that their experience of Christians is not behaving in a manner worthy of the gospel. Those jerks that you were talking about, John. Mm. And I've seen it play out quite unpleasantly in SRE at school. So when I first started at Roseville Public School, it was sort of part of the fabric of the place. And slowly but surely, families opted out of um, Christian scripture and we were getting this increasing body of non-scripture kids. And so the St James Ethics Centre write this course for ethics education and presented it as an, as an alternative for kids in the school. And there was an almighty outcry from our um, brothers and sisters. I got emails, barrages of emails saying, you've got to stand up for this, go in and speak to your principal and demand your rights, just, just as you were saying. And it felt wrong. I felt... That we were being, we were sticking, standing up for rights rather than um, acknowledging a privilege that we no longer had, mm. and and so we, I think you and I actually did an interview here in church and posted it about, um, actually ethics education was going to be a good thing for um, scripture because it was going to give those um, those atheist families who are really um, opting into the non-scripture. A place to go so that there wasn't a cry by the forest people who are now back on their bandwagon saying there are too many people who are not in scripture and it's a waste of time and we have seen and i think an extended life of scripture so that's one of the places where i've seen i think where i would have preferred a little bit more humility and
0: grace what would that have looked like
1: well, I think it would have been, uh, rather than going into the PNC meeting and demanding and asking me to go to the PNC meeting so that we could stack it, um, going in and, and speaking, I I would I thought it was a, an opportunity to engage with people about why they felt they needed ethics education. If they didn't want scripture education, this opened a whole dialogue on what are ethics, what constitutes right and wrong, what constitutes... and. And I have made it my business to get to know who the ethics teachers are and engage them in that. And many of them had their kids in Christian scripture and it wasn't satisfying them where they were at. And so I just, I sort of got it. I, I wanted to put myself in their shoes and say, okay, if, I, if they were in demanding that I let them be in here, would I be as happy as I, if me demanding they let, yeah. If we're the shoes, if we're on the, in the, each other's place would I be as comfortable with it? And I, I just think... And and we have a lovely relationship with the school and I think they do extend us a lot of um, latitude in the way we conduct ourselves. And, yeah, so... And that's that mostly down
0: to you, I reckon, oh. Kath. No, seriously, <laughs> oh, no. You, you have exemplified yeah. this up there, so...
1: Yeah, it no, wasn't supposed to be a main thing. Anyway, yeah. so that was... Yeah, so, um, yeah... The conviction, compassion thing. Yes, we do have to stand up for what we believe is right. Mm. And I know we see a, co- a community that where if the law reflected Christian values all the time, and it often does anyway, mm. it would be wonderful. But it, we can't demand that that's the case. We have to live so people want that to be the case, mm. I guess, yep. is what I would like to say. Thanks.
2: Uh, one of the things that struck me through um, what we've read in Philippians so far is Paul's attitude, think on his situation there, he's in jail in Rome and if anyone could kind of scream out, injustice, this ain't fair, he could and yet there's this incredible tone of joy throughout the letter. He, he has this attitude and the thing that really struck me here is that I, I think I see the, the key in verse 21. I think I see what's going on for Paul there. When Paul says, um, you know, with the prospect of either death or life, when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, um, I just find that's that's what's going on for him. His love for the Philippians kind of is what's driving his, you know, well, do I live or die? Well, I think i probably need to live for your sake. So it's, 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 um, it's driven by love. Um, and I think a profound understanding of the gospel. I, I mean, I think I began with, wow, isn't Paul fantastic? Isn't he the most admirable Christian I've ever, you know, heard about? Uh, wow, you know, maybe one day I could aspire to that if I really work hard. <laughs> And I realized, you know what, that's not it at all. Actually, Paul just gets the gospel. And I think, you know, remembering the gospel is all about God and all that he's done. This, for Paul, is simply the logical implications of the gospel. This is how I am because of the gospel. And uh, he, Paul knows God has given him new life in Christ. And so his old life is discarded it's of no value any longer. He's dead to that now. Uh, He's a follower of Christ. And it actually reminded me of Jesus' own words to anyone who wanted to be his disciple. You might remember back in Mark 8, Jesus is becoming very popular and everyone wants to follow him. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, If you want to gain everything in this life if you want the big house and the boat and the car and the career and the success and blah 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 you won't get it. it you will lose all of that it will ultimately become worthless but the one who gives up this life for me and for the gospel will gain life and so I've been really thinking on on that attitude that Paul has and how he gets it it's really an extension of the gospel. It did remind me of, um, of a guy called Jim Elliott, a famous missionary, smart man. He said, basically, uh, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So quite challenging stuff, yep. really, as we think on that. Um, but the win here is that to live is Christ. That's, that's the upside in this in this. Uh, and the even greater upside, of course, is to die and to gain. But, so therefore, I think this satisfaction that you were speaking about, you know, this isn't um, you know, kind of being disentangled from desire, but the satisfaction that is in Christ is profoundly fulfilling. If
1: anybody has any questions you would like to um, ask the guys at the front, then just pop your hand up and I'll bring you the microphone. I was in a meeting with two guys at work, and one of them used the expression like Moses parting the Red Sea, and then he immediately said, I don't know why I said that, I'm an atheist. <laughs> and I either smiled or laughed, but could not think of the right thing to say in a split second. What would you guys have said?
0: You go first, Kath. Oh. Well, I think of a really good comeback.
1: No, I'll uh, just... Um,
0: here. I would have just asked, like, yeah. so do you know that story? Yeah. Like, how do you know that story? And keep on asking questions until you can think of something cool to say. <laughs>
1: But it's a cool story. <laughs> yeah, it's a good
2: one. I would have said, tell me about this God that you don't believe in. Maybe <laughs> I don't believe in him either. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: You wouldn't have said, I'm a Christian, pleased to meet you?
0: Oh, did he not know you're a Christian? It's not a mate. Oh. Uh, yeah, I would have pulled out the, the two ways to live tract. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, definitely not.
0: Uh, context is everything. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know.
1: You might say, Moses didn't part the Red Sea, God
0: (laughs) God. did. You had 60 (laughs) seconds to think about that, though. Doesn't count.
1: (laughs) Any other questions I can help you with?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks, John. Just uh, a comment and maybe some reflections on this term that's being bandied around at the moment, winsome Christianity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Being winsome, obviously, um, it means Lovely. And uh, but conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel and worthy of Christ, being winsome, what, what I'm seeing from that is more a push towards social justice and um, paint the picture of the love of God, but don't mention justice or the need to repent or sin. Uh, just some thoughts on uh, winsomeness.
0: Yeah, uh, it's not really a word in the Bible, um, it, but you do get words like, Gentleness and respect, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope, but do this with gentleness and respect. Or uh, Peter says, return insult with blessing. Or Paul says, uh, let your speech be always filled with grace so that you may know how to answer everyone. So there is a definite um, dominant theme in the New Testament that the way we are to engage in public is with grace, gentleness and respect and blessing. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't see that as uh, being quiet or withdrawing uh, or backing down from any of the controversial issues. Um, I, the way I, I read the New Testament call is that Christians would be totally public, cheerfully walking into whatever train's going to run them over, um, just cheerfully saying what they think is the good. And when they get hit around a little bit in the media, they just, they're cheerful because they're resting on Christ. And they're, they're so secure in Christ, they're able to be gentle, but at no point does gentleness meaning, mean to withdraw and only focus on, you know, caring for the poor instead of opening our mouths for Christ. I, I don't buy that at all, um, but I sort of buy the, the, the kind of get out there on every issue where you can talk about what is the good but always do it with cheerfulness and always be willing to lose well because we're, we're going to have to recover this art of losing well because there are going to be a lot of, lots of losing, I reckon, coming up and how we lose will be such a sign of the gospel um, uh, to the public and I think will determine how people think of Christians as a result.
2: I think even further that losing can be suffering too. Yeah. It, it may well come to that and so... I find, uh, as you were saying in verse 29, that the way that we endure whatever the world throws at us that, uh, is powerful. Yeah.
1: And, and last week, the, the two arms, the conviction, compassion. Um, yeah. Uh,
3: Kath, I just wanted to say something when you were talking about SRE. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it ties into losing well. That in some ways, sometimes losing isn't actually losing. That perhaps, you know, it was meant to be that, that SRE, we were challenged and we, we had to face that. That it's a privilege that we've been allowed so long in schools. Yeah. But um, on a positive note, many of those ethics students are coming up to the church here too extreme. And yeah. I, think, <laughs> I think that's a, an example of of you know perhaps we're not you know we're not actually losing we're just being shown by god another way of going about things
1: and um, i think yeah sorry the other thing that has happened to selena is that we've actually sharpened up our scripture teaching as a result um we're getting better at doing it in the way that we have been legislated to do um and um and i think we're and we're doing a lot more training with our teachers so we've actually it's actually caused us to pick up our game as well yeah But I have a
3: question for you three, sitting up there in the hot seat. Um, (laughs) It was a question that was posed right at the beginning, and and that's what element of today's culture has the church embraced, which later Christians will look back on as a betrayal of the gospel of Christ. John, would you like to answer that?
0: I mean, almost by definition, how on earth would I know? (laughs) Because here I am, right? I mean, sometimes I have glimpses of it. Um, uh, particularly around wealth, you know, I, I do wonder whether the kind of levels of wealth and comfort that we, we see as uh, rights and demands, and, or even as norms, may in a hundred, two hundred years be seen as a betrayal of Christ, perhaps, um, given what that money could be uh, used for. Um, given the frugality of sort of a a previous generation um, who maybe had as much resources but were more frugal in in their their use than we are. I I don't know, that's one thing, maybe. Um, Maybe my colleagues have other things. But, you know, by definition, here we are in in this culture, unable to see ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And the only only out is to listen to this voice all the time. Mm
2: -hmm. I would think... In our particular culture in the North Shore of Sydney, success, we assume and we expect that we will be successful, and I wonder if in 100 years' time we might wonder about that. Uh, I'll let you think on that, but my 20 cents says success is part of our culture that we have absorbed and we expect.
1: I I really come from a kids' ministry point of view, but I think um, we see um, church and Christian community slipping down the priority list uh, a little bit, and I don't know if that's a part of culture, but I feel in this neck of the woods, there's so much on offer, Um, and I find myself trying to be, um, or trying to get our team to be Mm. whiz-bang and and entertaining, and maybe that's us slipping into our culture.
0: We're so down on duty, aren't we, as Mm. a culture? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and just become the options, just whatever options. Mm, yeah.
1: yeah. Really quick last one. Thank you. I think Christians are the worst example of Christians. Um, recently, uh, in this past week, I've um, read a couple of articles um, condemning the new contemporary way of worship compared to the, the older style of worship. And seriously, like, get over it, people. Um, and I think we can be... Really, We're so critical of other denominations, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, so we, do, we can only do something about ourselves, I realise that. But yeah, anyway, that's my tuppence worth. <laughs> you know,
0: um, in a couple of weeks, we'll, there's a really key passage in here about doing everything without grumbling. Mm. Wow, that's a challenge for Christians, isn't it?
3: <laughs>